Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Whoa! Is this porn? What did I do? I must have hit something on the remote. Do we pay for this? No, we didn't even pay our cable bill. Maybe this is how they punish us. Maybe we shouldn't pay our phone bill. Free phone sex. Maybe we shouldn't pay our gas bill. Whoa, hey, that lady's all kinds of naked. Yeah, Joey, just pressed something on the remote and it just came on. Hey, it happened to me once. I was just flipping through the channels and bam. It was like finding money. Like finding money with naked people on it. And I made the mistake of turning off the TV. I never got it back again. And I'm sad. Why would he turn off the TV? Watch this while we eat. No, 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 We don't know what could make this go away. Yeah, so no one touches the remote. And no one touches the TV. And no one touches the air around the TV. Imagine a protective porn bubble, if you will. I'm at least going to mute it. No, 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 no. <laughs> We still have porn. What is that song that's been in my head all day? It's the theme from Goodwill Humping. You know who doesn't even like dirty movies? My new boyfriend, Joshua. Yeah, right. No, he told me he prefers to leave certain things to the imagination. Oh, oh, yeah, and did he also say that uh, he thought that some of the dialogue was corny and that he actually found it funny, not sexy? Yes! <laughs> yeah, he likes porn. Where are you going? We're gonna find out if he really thinks supermodels are too skinny. Hi. Hi. Hey. Listen, can we watch cartoons on your television? We need a porn break. We spent the last two hours watching In and Out and In Again. Well, so why don't you just turn it off? Because then we'd be the guys who turned off free porn. Yeah, but that's not like what you'd go by. Rach, look, I want to have a kid someday, okay? And someday that kid is going to ask me if I ever turned off free porn. I don't want to have to tell him that I did. Did you ever ask your dad that? I don't want to talk about it. Hey. Hey. I was just at the bank, and there was this really hot teller, and she didn't ask me to go do it with her in the vault. <laughs> Same kind of thing happened to me. Woman pizza delivery guy comes over, gives me the pizza, takes the money, and leaves. What, no, like, nice apartment, bet the bedrooms are huge? <laughs> no, nothing. You know what? We have to turn off the porn. I think you're right. Be like. All right, ready? 
That's kind of nice. Yeah, it's kind of a relief. Yeah. <laughs> you want to see if we still have it? Yeah. you do i mean if you had the chance to catch a free glimpse little skin some harmless entertainment that thrills no consequences what would you do would you watch at your friend's house would you i don't know laugh it off turn it off take a peek then turn it off if there's one thing about porn it's this porn is sneaky no one sets out to get caught up in it no one invites it into their home or life as like an honored guest, but it somehow has a way of showing up all around us, doesn't it? No one decides to make it a, a weekly habit, and no one expects it to suddenly need a hit every day. And certainly nobody <laughs> expects it to blossom into a full-blown addiction. But it does. And it starts out in very, very sneaky ways, making small little overtures, but subtly insinuating itself into the fabric of your, of your life. And if it's not a free channel that your cable box unscrambles, then it's one of a thousand spam emails with an alluring link that invites you for a closer look. It's all around us, waiting for us behind the counter when you pick up a cup of coffee at 7-Eleven, sets of eyes peeking above brown paper into the racks from the racks behind the counter, right? Or in a tamer version staring at you in the checkout line at the supermarket, right, where, where the sirens of Glamour magazines promise to tell all a hundred ways to drive him crazy in bed. Secrets for her. 99 hottest lusty ladies, fantasies for him. You're hard-pressed to live in 21st century America, in our Western culture, and not run into it. Porn is everywhere, soft, hard, deviant, mainstream. It's the currency of our hypersexual society. <laughs> It's used to, to indulge the deepest, darkest passions of deviance or get a soccer mom to, to buy a product as simple as shampoo. Yes, yes, yes! <laughs> I remember the first time I ran into it, actually, as a young boy. I was probably 10 or 11 years old, and it was a summer day. Um, I remember uh, because I was out in the, in the woods playing army with my next-door neighbor, Harry Torella. <laughs> We'd grab our BB guns and we'd head out into the forest all summer. Across the, the forest is right across the street from us. We'd go into the woods all summer and play capture the flag. But this afternoon was different. Because this afternoon, me and Harry, we struck gold. At least it's gold when you're 11 years old. And we had never seen anything like it before. I mean, I, you know, now I had stolen some quick peeks at like the National Geographics in my middle school library, you know? It's like a rite of passage in fifth grade. You know, check out the naked natives. Go look. But that was just a goof. <laughs> One which Mrs. Kuoko, our grade school librarian, put the kibosh on right quick. But, but this, th this cachet of magazines that Harry and I found poking out from beneath a railroad tie next to the abandoned tracks in the woods, this, this was something else entirely. No, no native pygmies with painted faces suckling their children. These... These were, how can a young boy describe it? Words fail. Women's heads were, were, 
were, were tilted back, their, their eyes closed, their mouths open, and when they were open, all sorts of things happened that Harry and I were flummoxed to put words to. Things we had never seen before. I mean, images our young eyes had never actually glimpsed. Things that our young minds couldn't even dream up if we wanted to. Well, you know what Harry and I did? We ran home and we told Mom. Well, check that. We innocently asked Mom for a big shoebox. And we stashed those magazines in our secret fort down by the community pool, you know, for safekeeping and for future reference. And we came up with quite a collection that summer. There, there were actually more magazines wedged under those railroad ties. Someone's keeping their secret stash there, I guess, in the woods. And some of Harry's friends had magazines of their own. And they added to our, our budding library of flesh in the forest for that summer. That's almost 25 years ago. You never really do forget the first time you encounter it, do you? You remember your first exposure to pornography? Your first experience with it? Maybe it was just an innocent flash of something outrageous in your teens, but you never really you know, pursued it. It's, it's, it's not played much of a role in your life. <laughs> You're one of the lucky ones. For others of us, early exposure turned into ongoing experience. Myself, I, it was just a dabbling, and I came from a Christian home, and I kind of knew better. I mean, there's always, I always sensed there was something a bit off about what was being done to these women between these glossy pages, and, and I also had a healthy sense of, of, of shame and guilt that kept me in line. That's, that's one of the great things about a fundamentalist upbringing. <laughs> and, and so in high school, I drew the line at the annual Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, you know? That was like kind of like legal porn, okay? And I remember leaving a, a party that some of my fellow athletes had where, where they celebrated a big, big victory by, by moving beyond the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue to getting one of their dad's adult videos. And I remember leaving that party and just kind of feeling like such an outsider, like a square. I'm so glad I did. In college, well, I went to a Christian college, one in which you know better. You don't carry around Hustler tucked in between pages of your intro to the Bible text. Um, but there were ways around that. We got our fix because by that time in the early 90s, the nasty girls behind the convenience store registered had jumped the counter and they were now in the mainstream. I mean, why would you risk Playboy or Hustler in a brown paper bag when you could walk out with details or Maxim proudly displayed underneath your arm? What? I read for the articles on skydiving. What do you want from me? Email and the internet were actually just becoming mainstream during my final years at college. It kind of dates me a bit, but quite honestly, I can't imagine what would have happened had my roommates and I had access to the cable modem 24-7, unmonitored in our apartment. Our senior year, we downloaded like 7,000 Napster songs. We weren't quite onto it just yet. I can't imagine what that would have led to, and it makes me shudder for the kids and the teens growing up today who know how to sniff it out, flesh online. It's as easy as a Google search. Computers in your own room. Porn has become mainstream ever since. The line between hardcore and softcore porn blurred now beyond all recognition. Its, its reach is sweeping. And its impact on our culture and individual lives and families, staggering. The statistics are almost impossible to fully absorb. You almost have to read them twice to believe what you're hearing is accurate. At $12 billion a year, the revenues of the porn industry in the U.S. are bigger than the National Football League, National Basketball League, and Major League Baseball combined. 
They also dwarf the combined revenues of major networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, those are about $6 billion. This is $12 billion industry. Worldwide porn sales are reported to be around $37 billion. I know that really means nothing to you. I'll put it in perspective. Microsoft, you know Microsoft who sells the operating system used on most of the computers in the world? They reported sales of $36.8 billion in 2004. $57 billion for porn. Number of pornographic websites is around 4.2 million, according to an MSNBC survey. About 60% of all website visits are sexual in nature, according to MSNBC. And 40 million, that's, that, that's the number of people who regularly visit internet porn sites on a daily basis. Breakdown of male-female visitors to, to porn sites might surprise you, actually. It's a man's problem, right? 65% male, 35% female. I'm a big movie guy. I like to see movies. Hollywood actually currently releases 11,000 adult movies per year. Go ahead, Jen, because that says more than 20 times the mainstream movie production. You can make a porn film for about $25,000. The average porn release grosses over 400000 You travel? Businessmen here? Businessmen. Now, no one's going to raise their hand participate in this, in this message, are they? I can see it now. <laughs> I'm like, well, 50% of hotel in-room movie rentals are porn movies. The biggest chains, Hilton, Marriott, Hyatt, Sheridan, Holiday, and they all offer adult films, pay-per-view, television systems. And they're purchased by a whopping 50% of their guests, which accounts for nearly 70% of their in-room revenues, many bars notwithstanding. <laughs> In the LA Times, one hotel owner said, we have to have it, our guests demand it. We have a lot of connoisseurs of film are dewy because the average time a porn movie is watched in a hotel room is 12 minutes. A lot of meetings I guess people are going to. Just men? 17% of all women struggle with porn addiction and one in three visitors to all adult websites are women. That's about 9.4 million women access adult websites every month. I think what's most disturbing probably, at least it was to me, is that Studies show that women, far more than men, are likely to actually act out their behaviors in real life, such as having multiple partners, casual sex, or affairs. But here's the good news. It's a lot better in church, right? That's why you're here, because <laughs> you don't struggle with this. <laughs> yeah, Christians too, I guess, is, is, is something of an issue. Um, Promise Keepers, you know the famous organization Promise Keepers? Kind of gathered Christian men for stadium rallies all through the 90s. They did a 1996 survey at one of their stadium events and it revealed that over 50% of the men in attendance were involved with porn within one week of attending the event. Man, we have some explaining to do, huh? I have some explaining to do. Pastors, 42% of pastors admit that pornography is a major struggle for them. You guys have heard of Rick Warren, author of Purpose Driven Life. He, he actually operates a website called pastors.com, and he conducted a survey on porn use out of about 1,400 pastors, and 54% of the pastors had viewed porn on the internet within the last year, and 30%, a third, had visited within the last 30 days. And things are not very helpful for the next generation of Christian men and leaders. In uh, the National Coalition to Protect Christians their children and families, they actually went to about five different college campuses, Christian evangelical schools, to see how the next generation 
of believers was doing a sexual purity, and about 48% of males admitted to current porn use. And almost 70% said that they intentionally viewed a sexually explicit site at the school. Numb enough yet? Yeah, me too. Porn is all around us. We live in one of the most hyper-sexualized cultures in the history of Western civilization. You know, quite honestly, this issue is, is actually, while it's shocking, it's not entirely new. Especially as a burning moral issue that confronts the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, almost 2,000 years ago in the Greek city of Corinth, a young congregation, <laughs> an early church community that was planted by the Apostle Paul, faced just this kind of epidemic of hypersensuality that threatened to overwhelm them. And they didn't know what to do. And that's the passage of scripture that I'd like to work off of tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. You can actually pass the pew Bibles if you didn't bring your own. Grab one. We'll have page numbers for you. If you're a guest, don't worry. We'll tell you where things are. We won't freak you out. We're going to even give you a little lights in the back so you can read along with us. We're going to look at scripture, and you kind of think it's a strange place to look at the Bible, but God isn't silent or disinterested when it comes to this topic. Jay, can you get the lights just a tiny bit, just a tiny bit for folks to, to be able to see? The Bible um, is actually a pretty explicit book, and explicit itself when it comes to describing God's design for sexuality. And it doesn't shy away from aberrations about that. The Bible's a holy book. It's God's inspired word. That's great. But it tackles real-life issues head on. Here's, this, here's the deal, folks. God is not surprised by our dirty little secrets. <laughs> And he offers an alternative vision for restoration of those who are in bondage to sexual sin. And he gives a vision, a compelling vision of sexuality as he intended it. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. And before I read this, in fact, let me pray and ask God's Spirit to bless our time together, okay? Lord Jesus, tough topic. Tough topic, Lord. Um, I'm sure even now some of us feel shame and embarrassment and would love to bolt this sanctuary then spend time looking at the Bible, because this, this opens some, some raw wounds. We feel the hot light of, of your truth now approaching some of the dark corners of our lives. But we're staying here, Lord, because we trust you. We know you love us. Your desire is to bless us, not punish us, not shame us. We know you sent your son to give us life and freedom and joy and hope. So I pray now that your Holy Spirit would be here in all of his fullness, teaching us, leading us, opening up our hearts, planting your word, and accomplishing the purpose for which you sent it tonight. And do that all in the name of Jesus the Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Master. Amen. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, read along with me. Paul writes to the community of believers at Corinth with regard to sexuality. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything's beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself. Shall I then take the members of Christ 
and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Stop there. A bit of background about Corinth. I mean, those of you with a history in ancient Civ know it was a major city in the eastern Peloponnese of Greece. It was a, a, a cosmopolitan city. Had a big seaport, major trade center, most important city in the region. And, and the city of, of Corinth was actually located at the foot of a huge mountain. And the mountain was called the Acro-Corinth, from which the city of Corinth got its name. But what was most significant was what the Greeks had built at the top of that mountain, at the top of the Acro-Corinth, at which at the foot the city of Corinth lay. Because at the top of that mountain was a temple. A temple in which people worshipped. Anyone know what god or goddess that temple was devoted to? Want to take a shot? Mighty Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Yes. Aphrodite, you remember your middle school Greek mythology? Yeah. Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of love. You might know her by her Roman name, Venus. And so literally, this Corinth was the city of love and sex, Aphrodite, where you get aphrodisiac. It was a sensual, deeply eroticized world that was just kind of basting in the sensual juices of the, of the day. Now check this out. Looking around for a church? The temple of Aphrodite, where, where many of the Greeks went to worship on a daily basis, actually employed more than 1,000 prostitutes as priestesses. And sex there was part of the established worship ritual. Okay? Not pastors. Priestesses. Women pastors. But they didn't preach. They did other stuff. <laughs> In a very real way, the people of Corinth worshipped sex. Literally, not, not as a metaphor. They, they worshipped the goddess Aphrodite and at her altar and in her name they partook of sex with temple prostitutes. This was their way of, of, of partaking in the divine. Of just kind of tasting transcendence. Sound familiar? And into this melting pot of sensuality comes the Apostle Paul planting a church. <laughs> a community of new followers of Christ. On his second missionary journey, he had preached the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time. And several hundred folks believed his message that Jesus was the crucified and risen Son of God who died to forgive their sins and restore their relationship to the creator of the universe. They believed, but they were a small minority, ragtag band of followers. And this totally cut against the religious tradition of their Greek friends and the culture itself. Think about Greek culture, the pantheon of gods and goddesses that you had to choose from. And so this little band of believers were struggling. They were struggling to figure out how do you live a life that is faithful to our new calling as sons and daughters of the living God in a bastion of hedonism. 
And they had lots of questions, especially with regard to sex. And so Paul writes this letter to give them direction from the Lord. And in a lot of ways, I suppose, you could change the address from the church at Corinth and make it the church in America, and the message would fit just about as well. And so what I want to do with our time remaining is simply go over the main points that Paul offers this outpost of Christ followers, because his teaching specifically relates to the many lies and distortions about porn that most of our world, and in fact many of us here tonight, wrestle with. If you begin in verse 12, Paul begins with a saying that evidently was actually very popular among Corinthian believers. There's a slogan, some bumper stickers. Everything is permissible for me. <laughs> now you got to get this. I know. How many of you are like longtime church folks? Again, no one's raising their hand tonight. Everyone's like, I am not participating. <laughs> okay, that's all right. That's good. I'll answer for it. Uh, <laughs> these are mostly new believers. This is like their first taste of Christianity. And they were thrilled when they came upon this concept of like, freedom in Christ, Paul? That sounds pretty good. <laughs> As you know, most of... Paul's foundational teaching was that when men and women accepted Jesus into their hearts, they were now free. Free from religion that was superstitious. Your gods and goddesses of the Roman pantheon, throw them out. Free from religion that was like legalistic about what you had to eat. No, no, the Jewish thing, that's not it either. You are now free to enter into a relationship with God that's marked by, not fear, not control, trust. Rather than a religion of rules and laws enforced by fear and punishment. Freedom. But these early Christians were, were, were hearing that a little bit distorted. They were kind of missing it. Instead, they were quoting and misapplying the words, everything is permissible for me to excuse their sins and basically do as they please. Basically, their thinking went like this. Hey, now that Je I've got the message, Paul. Now that Jesus has taken away all sins, I pretty understand. I, I've got some license here. I, I've got freedom to live as I please. Likewise, if they weren't as outright flagrant, some of the more thinking people were like, no, no, Paul taught us to appeal to the scriptures. And they appealed to scripture, and when it came to rationalizing their licentious behavior, they said, well, the Bible doesn't really strictly forbid what I'm into. So I guess it's okay, right? And to this, Paul responds, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be, what word? Mastered by anything. In other words, Paul says... That some actions are not sinful in and of themselves, but they're not appropriate because they can control our lives and actually master us, leading us away from God, leading us out of relationship. Sin is sneaky that way. Porn is sneaky. Sin is about mastery. What controls you? What you worship? And the real meaning of freedom isn't about being free to see what I can get away with. <laughs> But the freedom Paul's talking about is the freedom not to sin or be controlled by your carnal desires. That's the real meaning of freedom. To live free of sin, of guilt, of shame. Enjoy anything that comes from God without being mastered or controlled by it. His point. He starts out very general. Some actions, folks, may appear harmless. But watch it, believers. They actually have the power to master you. Get you on a leash. Bind you up eventually control your life and lead you away from God into bondage. And this exposes probably the number one lie about porn that many people believe today. Porn is harmless. <laughs> if you actually, I, I do this a little bit because uh, you know our offices are downtown, so a lot of time when I'm in restaurants and stuff, I'll, I'll <laughs> I start up these conversations. They don't know what to make of me. Like, I'll be at the Lemon Lounge, like, you know, getting, like, you know, an iced tea in the afternoon. I'll be like, hey, quick question. What do you think, Pat? Porn, good, bad, neutral. They're like... Pat knows me now. He's like, he's a pastor. Just go with him. 
And, uh, <laughs> and he's like, Luch, neutral. I like, I don't really know where to make up my mind on that thing. You know, I don't want to be like real legalistic, but it's like, you know, some people enjoy it in the privacy of their own home. Truth is, there is little else in this world that has the potential to master us so utterly and completely and radically distort one's behavior and thinking and attitudes towards sexuality and towards others. Porn, as you know, makes sport of women in a, in a dehumanizing way. I never really even caught it as, as I was thinking about it, but the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, woman on the cover, Sports Illustrated, hey, competitors, guys, this is what it's about. You're competing over the big trophy, the big prize. Reducing females to objects that are to be exploited for really man's singular pleasure, or, or vice versa. The power of porn lies in its subtle ability to dehumanize another person and keep you obsessed with your own sexual gratification. I mean, be honest, okay? Most folks never start off intending to become addicted to it. I think I'm really going to try to really have this thing get a grip on my life so I destroy my marriage, lose my job. No. <laughs> Like most alcoholics, prior to beginning recovery, you'll commonly actually hear folks say, what's the big deal? I can stop whenever I want to. Porn is not that powerful. That's the lie. The truth is it's addictive, like a drug, always requiring more and more intensity and variations to top one's previous high. You talk to a longtime porn user, and they'll, and they'll tell you what got you off yesterday doesn't really arouse you today. Now, you bring that into the marriage bed <laughs> or any personal real-time relationship that is not fantasy, oh, you've got a recipe for disaster. But don't take my word for it. Listen to some men who've learned the hard way. Jen, would you go ahead and roll their testimonies for us? I grew up in a Christian home, and I'm, I'm thankful for parents that did bring me to church. And I just kind of decided one night in the back of the church, there was a Sunday night service, and I was just like, God, um, I'll, I'm going to serve you later. You know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chase girls. Because it fried my flesh. It fried what I wanted. I wanted to, to get into this pornography stuff, and I started heading down that road. I began to do things that I would have told you before I would have never done in my entire life. I lost everything, everything. I saw these pictures, and um, it was the first time I'd seen anything like that, and something, something clicked inside of me. Something, you know, happened where I thought, that's, that's something I want. It began to slowly, without me even realizing it, get worse and worse and worse and I kept wanting more to take it to the next level. You can't fathom the pull that that kind of fantasy has in your life unless you've experienced it. My life, the spiral just kept going down, 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 down. This pull inside of me became so great that all I wanted to do was satisfy that. But yet I could never fulfill it. I could never satisfy it. For years, I, I would have these times where I was like, I really wanted to stop what I was doing. I knew it was wrong. I, I wanted to follow the Lord. I wanted to uh, walk in His ways and please Him with my life. But 
but this had started such a hold on me, even at a young age, that I just, I just couldn't seem to break away from it on my own. I had, I had been baptized in my church at 12 years old, and I knew, um, I knew from sitting in, in church and sitting in Sunday school my whole life, every Sunday, um, that it was wrong. But there was no reality of knowing this is wrong, therefore it must change. I just knew it was wrong, and I didn't know how to change it, and I didn't want to change it. Porn is far from harmless. I mean, its impact is, is devastating. It's not just on the psyches of men and women who eventually become addicted to it either, but to their families, their children, their spouses. Just, just witness the wreckage of homes and marriages due to porn. It's interesting, at a 2000 meeting of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, you know what that's a euphemism for? Divorce lawyers. <laughs> Two-thirds of the divorce lawyers who attended said internet porn contributed to more than half of the divorce cases they were currently handling. Porn played a role in more than half of the divorce cases they were currently handling. The aftershocks of porn addiction in a marriage are, are actually very little different than the fallout of the actual physical act of adultery. I actually have a friend not in this church, not in the state even, who is uh, going through a dark night of the soul himself when it comes to porn. His habit, the way we know each other really well, go way back, and his habit started early in his teens. He grew up in the church, and uh, porn was part of his like secret rebellion. And what started out innocent, you know, a quick peek from a, a mag stashed under his bed, eventually actually led to, to harder core magazines, then, the way he tells it, videos in college. And then once he was out of college, had his first job, lap dances. Discover the world of lap dances. And uh, I remember him telling me when, when he married. I mean, this guy was not outright rebellion. He's just like, you know, I know Jesus wants more from me, but uh, Tim, I just feel like this is like another part of my life. And when I get married, finally I'll be able to be done with this. And he got engaged and, uh, and married. And he, I remember him telling me, I'm so happy. He's like, I really feel like this is going to help me, Tim. I won't need that stuff anymore. I'll have the real thing. And tragically, when his wife inevitably failed to live up to the impossibly perfect images of airbrushed women that he'd be consuming for the previous decade. He turned to the net to supplement his married sex life. And nothing could duplicate the intensity of what he found online. It actually became a regular part of his nightly bedtime routine. Wife would go to bed, monitor on, pants around the ankles. Little release, and then off to bed. Harmless, just harmless, just a supplement, side dish. Harmless, that is, until his youngest daughter was scrolling through his web browser and clicked on one of Daddy's favorite links. His wife went ballistic, and, uh, and now they are struggling to save their Christian marriage and family from the devastating fallout that's ensued. The saddest part is that he was never even able, really, to enjoy sex as God had intended it. Through his regular use of porn, he had actually rewired his brain in such a complete way that it made it next into impossible for him to go back to regular, normal sex with his wife. It, it couldn't compete. It's how the trap works. More about that in, in a few minutes. The point Paul is making is that some actions may appear harmless, but they actually master us, eventually controlling our lives, and in some cases, destroying them completely. 
in leading us away from those who truly love us the most, God and others were in covenant with. The Corinthians had found a loophole. You get this? You see what they're doing? They found a loophole for justifying what they were doing. Everything's permissible if it's not mentioned in Scripture. And you know what? It's true. You will never find porn or masturbation as we know it explicitly mentioned or forbidden in the Bible. Go ahead. Find your concordance. <laughs> never going to find it mentioned. But both have the potential to enslave or master us like nothing else. Controlling our lives, trapping us in compulsive, endless cycles of guilt and shame and isolating us from God, from others. And Paul says, no. Under Christ, brother, sister, we are called to live in self-control, submissive to the control of God's spirit, and actually enjoy mastery over the desires of the flesh. Everything's permissible for me, but I won't be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach, Paul says, and, and stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. Yes, natural appetites and desires are normal. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But they're not eternal. God will destroy them both. You're not just a physical primate given to primal urges and desires. You're a spiritual being with a very concrete future in God's great eternal kingdom. It's interesting how Paul writes in verse 13, the second part of uh, verse 13, he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. You'd think he'd say not for sexual immorality, but, but he'd say it's meant for sexual morality. He doesn't say that. <laughs> and this is, some, this is the start of something Paul is trying to reveal about sex to the Corinthians. He says the body's meant for the Lord. He's hinting at a much broader picture that the Christian faith presents of sexuality. He's beginning to lay the foundation of saying sex is about far more than morality. What you can't, cannot do. You Corinthians are thinking sex is about obeying the rules. Keeping your noses clean, behaving like a prude. No. Sex, scripture says, is primarily a spiritual activity and not just a physical appetite. This is interesting, but what, what you believe about Jesus, about what kind of life his death and resurrection invites us into, it makes all the difference. Listen to what Paul writes in verses 13 or 14. He says, the body isn't meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he'll raise us also. In other words, Paul says, great, great, Christians. You believe that Jesus died and was bodily resurrected from the dead. Great, because that has tremendous implications for sex. And you probably have a question mark like the Corinthians did above their heads. <laughs> Our bodies and souls have an eternal dimension because of the Lord's resurrection. What we do in this life, in other words, has huge implications for the life to come. It's interesting. Many of the world's religions teach that the soul or spirit is important, but the body actually isn't. This is one of the distinctives. If you're ever like, what's the difference between Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, Islam? One of the main distinctives is that Christianity... Although sometimes influenced by these ideas, Christianity seriously takes very seriously the realm of the physical body. In other words, we worship a God who created the physical world, who created sex, and pronounced it good. Very good. And he promises us a new earth when, where real people have transformed physical bodies, not a pink cloud in the sky where disembodied souls listen to harp music. That's not it. That's not what the Bible says. At the heart of the Christian faith is a story of God himself, what? Taking on what? Flesh and blood, a body, and coming to live with us. 
And through that, offering both physical healing and spiritual restoration. So the Bible teaches that we humans are a combination of dust and spirit. Just as our spirits affect our bodies, so our physical bodies, the reverse, affect our spirits. We're far more integrated and holistic creatures than the world gives us credit for. We're not the sum total of the fire down below. <laughs> we can't commit sin with our bodies without damaging our souls, Paul's saying. Why? Because they're inseparably joined. And in the new earth, when Jesus returns, we'll actually have resurrection bodies that will not be corrupted by sin. That's when we'll enjoy the fullness of salvation. In a lot of ways, we are like the Corinthian Christians when it comes to porn. They were accustomed to drawing on... on actually, this was from Platonic philosophy. I don't know how much you want to get into that, but it was kind of interesting. Platonic, Plato, Greek, okay, said the soul is separate from the body. And that was very convenient because it allowed them to partake in sexual immorality without feeling it had any consequences to their soul. But it does, says Paul, because of Jesus, your soul matters. It matters to God. Your body matters to God as well. You are a fully integrated human being and eternal human spirit. And what you do with the members of your body have an effect on your heart, your mind, and your soul. So this is an integrated view of sex that Paul's presenting. And this was new stuff to the Corinthians. And its impact is on our souls and our bodies. Once he establishes that, he asks a pretty in-your-face rhetorical question. What's he say? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. As I mentioned in my little intro about Corinth, this city was built around this temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love and sex. And when the Corinthians scaled that mountain, the Acro-Corinth, to go and worship Aphrodite, they engaged in a worship ritual. When we come in here, we sing songs. Some churches pray, some light candles, or they partake in communion. Rituals. Same thing, but this is different ritual. Ritual sex. I want you to imagine coming to church for that. I actually think our parking lot would probably be a little fuller. <laughs> when you entered the temple of Aphrodite, it was swarming with prostitutes. And understand this. This is, this is hard for you to imagine because this isn't the sad 40-second kind of prostitutes, you know, like fishnet cigarette dangling from the lips. No. These were beautiful women. And in the Greek religious system, they were employed as priestesses leaders of the community, and they mediated the ways by which both men and women could get closer to God, to the divine, to the transcendent. And that way, according to cultural custom, was sex. <laughs> and they did it as soon as they entered the temple. You went and you saw a priestess, not a priest, and you got it on. And the orgasm with the stranger imparted a fleeting feeling of the divine, you know. Sex with strangers, orgasm, the source of transcendence. Sound familiar? You know it's a made-up, man-made religion. <laughs> the Corinthians literally worshipped at the altar of sex, of the flesh. That's actually where the word porn comes from, porneia. It's the broadest term for sexual sin in the Greek language. Pornography is graph writing, writing about sexual titillation. It was normal in Greek culture. And that's the second lie about porn that most American and Western Christians believe. Porn is, porn is normal. I mean, everyone does a little. 
just chill out, Tim. I mean, because a little is all right, right? Like the Corinthians, we live in one of the most hypersensual cultures in the history of the world, and we're saturated by media. That celebrates porneia. Celebration of the flesh with total bombardment. I mean, from movies, TV, to the internet, it wouldn't be hard for an alien who drops down to deduce what it is America worships. <laughs> Just look at a TV guide. A sampling of the primetime TV this fall shows us that the temple codes that we accept as normative, who watches Grey's Anatomy? <laughs> the OC? Yeah, no one raising their hands. Right, no one has a TV. Uh, Desperate Housewives. <laughs> Message can't be more clear. Sex outside of marriage is, is, is not only normative, it's desirable. I mean, that's where it's at. That's where fulfillment's at. It's not a scandal. It's expected. It's accepted. You remember friends, right? Big, big one growing up, me in the 90s. That was simply about friends living together. And although they are funny, but it was pretty much about friends hopping in and out of one another's beds. It was accepted. It was celebrated. It was funny. Humor has done more to mainstream porn in American culture than anything else. When you really want to mainstream something, use humor. That's it. Undermines everything. Conventional marriage. Think about it. When you see one depicted on TV, how's that look? Typically as confining and joyless as it gets. Remember married with children? Just about every marriage in an American sitcom involves some like dumb heavy guy married to like a gorgeous babe, and they just trade barbs with one another. Far from this, this, this divine romance and intimacy that God instituted when he brought Eve to Adam and charged Adam with the responsibility to care for, protect, and nurture this precious creation of mine. And, and this isn't just about sex on TV. Porn is, porn is about a particular view of sexuality. One that is not protective, but predatory particular view. You need look no further than one of the most popular sitcoms of recent years, right? Sex in the City, which featured a group of women, young women in their 20s and 30s, right? Samantha, Charlotte, Miranda, and what's uh, the lead girl? Who, Carrie, okay. Now I know who the sinners are. Oh, I got you, tricked you. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Shame, no. That series is so indicative of where our sex-obsessed culture has taken female sexuality. I mean, the whole bit is based upon these four cosmopolitan women playing the roles of men, right? Instead of sharing beer and, and, and scoping out girls at the bar, the women share martinis, talk about Manalo Blahniks, and plot their next nameless conquest. It's just a role reversal. It's actually the feminist ideology brought to full fruition, right? I mean, if I was a feminist, I would be so pissed at this. Because that, that was a feminist dream, right? Equality between the sexes. There's, there's no difference between men and women. And so now women, the most sexually sophisticated and complex of God's beautiful creation, are reduced to their male counterparts. Lust-driven, lascivious, not interested in relationships, just narcissistic and self-indulgent, only obsessed with exploiting a male object to gratify herself. Way to go, women. And now that's mainstream, because this isn't on HBO, is it, anymore? Now it's syndicated as a comedy on TBS. Have sex with everybody, friends included, TBS. Very funny. <laughs> sex in the temple. It's the highest good. And to make room for it, traditional mores of religious convention are now kind of thrown out and just ridiculed. So, you know, chastity, <laughs> purity, it's, it's like a goof. 
It's a goof. You don't believe me? How many of you saw the 40-year-old virgin? Just take a look at this. Just take a look at these two kind of ads for a minute. Look at the iconography. What does this tell you? Sexual predators, sophisticated, right? And desirable. Chastity or purity? <laughs> Naive and downright nerdy. That's the message. It's upside down. You see it? Unfortunately, we're suffering the effects of living in porn America, much like the Corinthians did. Sociologists tell us that marriage in Corinth at that time was actually in shambles. When, when prostitution became mainstreamed, moved out of the temple, immorality became pervasive. Eventually it made its way down from the temple on the mountain and into the homes of everyday Corinthians. And so when a young man came of age in Greek culture, kind of a Greek bar mitzvah, they brought in prostitutes for a special banquet to initiate him. In the last 10 years, the average age in America that a boy is exposed to pornography for the first time has fallen from age 11 to age 5. Thanks for that. Worldwide net, web, wow. You see the scope of the problem confronting the Christian church at Corinth. You get this? If sexual liberty was acceptable in the colony and surrounding culture, could it simply be accepted in the Christian community? These guys were literally asking, they were like, it's like everywhere. Maybe Christians should just be like chameleons. <laughs> we should just blend in and just change to match our surrounding environment. In the face of such a tidal wave of immorality, should we just cave in, get on with it, and just get it on like the rest of the world around us? Never, screams Paul in verse 16. Never. Don't you know? Your bodies are members of Christ Jesus, the Son of God. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said, the two will become one flesh. Paul goes back here to the Old Testament, right? Where's he going to? Genesis, right? Genesis 2.24 is a foundational moment in time in which the living God himself ordained sex in marriage. He says, I got an idea. Man, woman, I got an idea. Look how I've made them. Lifelong monogamous covenant between a man and a woman as the appropriate context for sex to be enjoyed, created, explored in the Garden of Eden. God creates Adam and he says, it's not good for this guy to be alone. Sex, one of my greatest gifts, is not for one person. Self-sex is not my design. <laughs> and so he creates Eve. And he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to this wife, and they will become one flesh. That's the ingredients of sex, by the way, for, in, in God's book. A husband and a wife in a loving, committed marriage covenant. Two real people, not one in a fantasy. That's the goal of sex, one flesh. A knitting of souls as well as bodies. A coming together of a man and his wife in the safety of their marriage bed under a canopy of trust, mutual sacrifice, and intimacy. I mean, intimacy on such a grand scale that these two creatures... You see what God's saying here? These two creatures are going to walk away from the experience forever changed. Having taken someone else inside the core of their being, they are no longer the same. They have bonded and meshed. Not just members, but spirits. And they're no longer two, but are now one. They're no longer Tim and Colleen. They're Tico. 
One. I remember in grade school, Mr. Miller was our art teacher, and he taught us about mixing colors, and he was always trying to like keep our interest. And, he was, and I remember one time he goes, he goes, all right, does everyone want to see a magic trick? And we're like, yeah. And he took blue, unscrews the blue, and unscrews canister of yellow, and he puts them together, swirls around with his magic paintbrush, Mr. Miller, and guess what? <laughs> it becomes green, right? And I remember my friend, Sean Callahan, who's kind of the class wise guy, he's like, what's the big deal, Miller? I could do that. And Mr. Miller said, okay, and he handed him the paintbrush with a little challenge. He said, I'll tell you what, Sean, Mr. Callahan, why don't you show us how to get them apart? I'm going to give you 20 bucks if you can turn green back into blue and yellow. And of course, Sean, he couldn't. <laughs> because a synthesis of these two primary colors had created a third beautiful shade we had never seen before, emerald green. And that green was something new, something permanent, Something that couldn't simply be reversed and put back in its original containers. And that's the goal of sex. Of forging that kind of permanent bond between a husband and a wife. And it's beautiful when it happens. Beautiful. Within marriage. When there's no going home in the morning. When there's not guilt or shame attached to it. I'm, I mean, isn't that incredible itself? The idea that sex could exist devoid of feelings of shame or guilt. Because right now, it's like I mentioned sex, and some of you are like, oh, gosh. But that's actually not a natural feeling as God designed it. It's like suckerfish. Our world has attached these false feelings to our distortion of God's design. Folks, God doesn't forbid sexual sin so that, you know, just to be difficult or spoil the fun. That's the lie. He knows its power to create something incredible as well as destroy us physically and spiritually when it's abused. And he wants to protect us from damaging ourselves and others, and so he offers to fill us himself, our loneliness, our desires, not just with marriage, but with himself, his very own spirit that can give us the power to restore sex to its ordained place in marriage. It's not just for our protection, it's for our blessing as well. I mean, it's funny, but I mean, sex is intended by God for pleasure as well as procreation. It was intended to be one of God's most joyous gifts to man. Enjoy, eat your fill, an ecstatic celebration with the wife of your youth. Echoes of communion, echoes of worship, hints of the divine, of the transcendent. Think about it. What does God choose as a symbol, the key metaphor to describe the relationship of Jesus with the church? What? Sex. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church, you horny dogs. <laughs> Sex is about sacrifice. You understand Jesus' sacrifice? It's not selfishness. Sex has nothing to do with suspicion but with trust that you can't imagine. The giving of oneself. Commitment. Not like a smash and grab sensuality and I'm out of here. Commitment. Lifelong. Till death do us part. Whatever happens to you, no matter how, how, what, what health happens to you, if your body falls apart, I am with you. You are God's gift to me. Intimacy. Not awkwardness, not distance. Can you imagine the being that associated with sex? Nothing undermines our sexuality and God's design for intimacy quite like porn does. Fred and uh, Brenda Stoker are the authors of a book called Every Heart Restored, A Wife's Guide to Healing in the Wake of a Husband's Sexual Sin. 
And they just do a great job explaining how porn and masturbation uh, actually function to wound both men and women, robbing them of the self-giving pleasure that God intended for them. Uh, flip over, do this, flip over. This is kind of interesting. I mean, Paul links it to marriage. It's actually uh, right there on chapter 7. Just look at verses 2 and 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You'll find it under the heading marriage, right? Paul writes, starting with verse 2, Paul says, Hi, Corinthians, since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Stop right there. One of the things that happens with sexuality is very simple. Uh, when you hear this, I think this is going to make a lot of sense right away. It did for me. It was like, oh, I get it. Paul's saying that when you were first created, when sexuality was first bestowed upon you, in 1 Corinthians 7, the way he describes it, he says, you can see sexuality was designed to bring pleasure to whom? Ourselves, yes, but who else? Our mate. Sex, Paul is saying, was never created as an individual act. It was designed to give our partner pleasure as well as ourselves, obviously. And so you notice, the Bible never talks about sexuality outside the realm of two. <laughs> it's never within the realm of one. It's always within the realm of two. And one of the things that happens when a man begins to look at porn, and then when he subsequently begins to do the very natural thing of masturbating to it, what that does is break down the way his sexuality was originally created. His sexuality was designed as a language to cultivate intimacy with his wife. And when he's doing it by himself with some strange girl in cyberspace, what's actually happening is this. The focus shifts from intimacy between two to intensity for one. From intimacy to intensity. And as he focuses on his own intensity constantly... And that self-gratification becomes the focus of his sexuality. It begins a breakdown and corrosion of the original purpose. And then when he gets, goes back to have sex with his wife, in a sense, he's, he's, he's broken. He's rewired the original wiring. He's still in bed with his wife, but he's not looking for intimacy. He's looking for the intensity he was getting out of the computer. And no wife is capable of generating that kind of easy intensity with a click like the computer offers. Porn can take you to levels of intensity that no human being can bring you to. And so it takes his focus off of her and he begins to focus on fantasy in his mind while he's with her to get back up that mountain. And it breaks down this whole intimate connection between them in bed. So there's a lot of serious problems associated with this stuff. I know a lot of people say, well, Wait a minute, I mean, masturbation doesn't really hurt anybody. It's not like it makes you go blind or something. It's true. <laughs> but it really does break down the normal, natural function of sex as God imagined it. It breaks down the normal view of sex as mutual giving, establishing intimacy between two, and makes sex about intensity for one. Party of one. Taking it for myself. And there's really nothing that will hollow a man out more quickly than forsaking his God ordained role as a masculine leader who serves his mate for a cheaper, easier role as a smash-and-grab narcissist who sees sex all about me. 
Look at how the message paraphrase renders 1 Corinthians 6. This is on the uh, opposite page in your Bible. There's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. As written in scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever, the kind of sex that can never become one. Truth. While porn may be pervasive, it is definitely not normal in the sense that it totally undermines God's design for sexuality. The way porn and masturbation work, it exposes the lie that private lust has no consequences. I mean, how can this be harmful? It doesn't involve anyone else but me. That's the point. Good. It doesn't involve anyone else but you. Jesus upheld Genesis 2.24 about sex between a husband and wife within the context of marriage as being the God-ordained arena for sexual expression and creativity. But Jesus went one better in Matthew 5, right? You've heard it said that anyone do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, Jesus says, you can go Old Testament on me, but I'm not allowing your little body-soul dichotomy. (laughs) Sex is as much about what happens here and here as it is here. You can deceive yourselves, but don't try and pull a fast one on your father because he actually created sex. You remember this? Mental lust is adultery. You may be staring at a screen or sitting on the couch alone or ogling a girl in the line at the supermarket, but you might as well have gone out and rented a prostitute, Jesus says. Problem is, it's even sadder for you because you don't even unite yourself to a real person. You're trying to bond to an airbrushed apparition, squandering your passion and strength on a glossy image that doesn't really exist. Sadness, hollow. You're not fooling anybody but yourself. What my father meant for a static one-to-one intimacy, you, you settled for a degrading, primal, zero-to-one lust that leaves you lonelier and more shame-ridden than ever. And it's why Jesus then calls for the radical, aggressive action in verses 29 that follows. You look at this real quick. Matthew 5, 29, 30, if you want to break free, it says, so therefore, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. He talks about eyes and he talks about hands. In other words, Jesus says, for an extreme cancer, you need extreme measures. Now, stop. Like, no, boy, if we ended the sermon here, what a disaster. Obviously, Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. If he meant that we should literally go ahead and do what he suggests, then you'd see most you know, men walking around with, you know, like pirates with eye patches. <laughs> Arg, right? No. In practical terms, this means that if you struggle with internet porn, you actually install blocking software. Or you give your wife or your roommate the passwords to your computer. Or you maybe move your computer from your room to a public, well-trafficked part of the house. Ah, wouldn't that hurt? Or maybe shut off internet access to your home entirely. Ouch! Exactly, Jesus says. That hurts. If cable TV is a problem, you cancel your subscription. You don't just like avoid the upper channel, you cancel it. 
If you can't stop watching porn movies in a hotel room, you actually leave the TV off or you don't travel alone or you find a new job. How bad do you want this, says Jesus? How bad do you want this? Do you really believe this has the power to destroy your life? It's big things and small tokens of your commitment. Maybe you don't buy GQ anymore, even though it has a fantastic article on vintage cars. <laughs> but you forgo it, so you don't put your place in the place of temptation of private fantasy. Maybe you invite your spouse to help. Cancel Victoria's Secret subscriptions. I, I don't want to explain. Just cancel it. Our enemy thrives on compromise and weakness, and the only way to win is to take the offensive and ruthlessly annihilate the stumbling blocks of lust in your life. That's how Paul closes his instructions to the Corinthians with the admonition in verse 18 to what? Flee. Flee from sexual immorality, Paul writes. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple? It's a temple, but of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Paul actually ends on a hopeful note. He's saying there is hope here, folks. There are ways out of this trap. In Christ, there is forgiveness and restoration. It's why he came. And that's perhaps the boldest lie of the enemy seeking to keep many of us in bondage. I can never stop. I'm beyond help. I know. I see it. I can even see it kind of in like the haze here, some pained expressions on people's faces because this is turning up the dial for some of you and it's like, oh, I so wish I never came because I, I can never stop this. You don't, you don't know. Tim, you, I mean, you're talking about like Maxim Magazine. Ugh. I am so far gone beyond help. Some days I don't even believe I'm a Christian because I don't care about grace. There's no God who would ever want me. This is actually the opposite of the, the first lie that says porn has no power. This says porn is all-powerful. I could never tell anyone, let alone get help. Paul normalizes this for the Corinthians later on in chapter 10. Look at this real quick. Chapter 10, verse 13. Paul says to them, No temptation has seized you except what is what? Common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. You need to look for those ways out, folks. As I said, if it means removing the TV or computer from your house, do it tonight. Don't linger. Take the drastic step. Paul uses the word flee, not like casually walk away. Flee. What, I mean, there aren't a lot of things in life you flee from. A burning house would be something you flee from. <laughs> when I was on the internet, I was actually searching for images related to the word flee in an image bank, and this is the image that they came up with. <laughs> I'm like, what kind of image are we going to use with a with verse about fleeing? A swift-footed gazelle leaping. Literally, that's what they came up with. And I'm like, all right, I mean, the thing's like jumping high. I mean, it looks like it's ripping across the field, but why is that fleeing? And then I read the caption to the picture. You know what the caption said? A gazelle on the African plains flees an approaching lioness out for prey. You can't see it in the picture, can you? Get your running shoes on, the Bible says. If you linger, you lose. Any lingering alliance with porn will bring you down. Dabbling in soft porn, you know, 
FHM, Detail Stuff Magazine. Bra how about this, browsing an adult site, but never going the full way and giving your credit card number. But I can get just a little enough by late night channel surfing when no one's around, defenses are down. No, flee. Make no pact, no compromise. That word flee indicates something else that's helpful, not just ominous. You can get away. But it's not enough to just need to run away from something. You actually have to re run towards something, don't you? That's what fleeing is about. And this is where Paul ends with to encourage the Corinthian believers, a reminder of the forgiveness and power that's at their disposal. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God? He's in you, whom you've received from God. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Where do we flee? Where do we run as our hypersensual, porn-saturated world nips at our heels? You first run to God, to confess, to repent, to actually receive his forgiveness and grace. Sex addiction is almost always about the buried desire for love and acceptance that someone isn't receiving in their ordinary life. And in Jesus, God is offering you a loving kindness, a friendship that is better than life, which is available only through the living God of grace. Porn is not the unpardonable sin. That's the lie. That's the final lie. Right now, tonight, I need to explode that for you. God, how about this lie? God hates those who struggle with pornography. It's an unpardonable sin. Nope. God abhors sin, but he doesn't abhor you. You may be disgusted with yourself, but God does not feel disgust when he looks at you. You're not an object of his contempt, even though you may be disgusted with yourself. This God, in sending his son Jesus to be crucified and resurrected to life, is all about forgiveness and restoration. It's called grace. And when Paul reminds the Corinthians, you were bought with a price, he's referring to the ultimate act of porneia, of degrading one's flesh. Paul says, see, there once was a man who actually sacrificed his body. He sold himself. He sold his flesh so that you could be restored and reunited with God. So that you could know true freedom. The freedom to resist sin and transcend the toxic world we live in and have your heart restored to God, to others. His name is Jesus. And the road to restoration leads through the cross that he died on. In many ways, folks... The cross of Jesus is the ultimate porn scene in its sense of abusing or degrading the flesh. On the cross 2,000 years ago, Paul had taught the Corinthians that sacred body of the Son of God was stripped before you, abused and defiled, exploited and then torn in two by a flesh-hungry crowd in their madness. In that image, don't you forget, Paul says, of a naked man hanging from a cross, taking on all the shame and guilt of the world's sexual sin. It may be repulsive, but it is redemptive as well. Because Jesus allowed himself to be stripped, dehumanized, treated as an object, abused and thrown away, he did this out of true love, true sacrifice, so that you'd never have to know that yourself. But instead, you could be forgiven your sin and resurrected to newness of life, united with God, controlled by his spirit. Being completely forgiven. Compl Do you believe that? Complete forgiveness is possible of you tonight. Utter forgiveness, complete and total. Past transgressions, present iniquity, what you did this week, and future struggles. 
That is the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's the message of, God, of the gospel. It's the gateway to life and restoration, Paul tells us. Flee and run to Jesus. Run into his arms and confess your sins. He's waiting to forgive you. Even more than that, to free you. There's hope. There's healing. Go first to him for it. And then you go to others, by the way. Because this is a sin, folks, that feeds off of isolation and shame. You flee immorality and you run to God, but you also run to community. You run to other brothers and sisters, tell trusted friends, a pastor, a counselor, and you seek and get help. Maybe in sexual addiction groups or counseling or even online help. Isolation is death in this battle. You need to know you are not alone and you need the support of others. The sin thrives on, on isolation and shame and their strength in numbers. You're not alone. This is every man's battle and every woman's so I offer you hope tonight because the cross tells us that as brothers and sisters in Christ we're all capable of being forgiven and restored. Porn is not the unpardonable sin. The only thing unpardonable in your father's eyes is not taking the steps of coming to him for complete forgiveness when he offers it with arms stretched as wide as a cross. I'll let the voices of those testimonials have a final word. You know, Lord, I can't believe that this is really what's in me, in me, you know, in my heart. You know, I hate you. You know, I, I, I would prefer these women and, and, and lust over you and loving you and all that you have done for me in my life. And I started to really break and, and repent and cry out to God that, Lord, I want to change. You know, I want to be free. I want to be different. I want to serve you. And it was like God was revealing to me the cross in a new way and the mercy that Jesus had poured out for me on Calvary. But God, in His grace and in His mercy, never gave up on me, and I am just so grateful that uh, God, in His mercy and His grace, said, I'm not done with you yet. I think through help from people at my church, um, I started to see how wrong this was from the Lord's perspective. I really can say that through all of this, Jesus has revealed himself through other people and his love through that. One day I just made a choice and I started crying out to God. I'm like, I can't make this go away, but I know you can. God has been faithful and to love me enough so that I know that he's loving me and that love has ruined me past that line in the sand. So I've been choosing his direction every time I've had a crossroad to go to. And so I started making choices. Choices to turn from what my flesh wanted. Choices to turn and to make a choice to love others, to love God. They say sex addiction is just another attempt to fill that God-shaped hole with something else to help numb the pain of loneliness and keep emptiness at bay. Jesus offers tonight not only to forgive you not only to begin freeing you, but to actually fill you up with himself. So the need to act out or numb out from the pain of rejection and loneliness is finally defeated because you begin entering a new life. The freedom that comes with knowing God's total acceptance of you as you are in the embrace of a community grounded in grace. Love which no other man or woman could ever offer you, let alone some airbrushed image on a blinking screen. Jesus longs to free you. He longs to heal you. He longs to fill you. And here at Liquid, 
we stand with you. He who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Let's stand for prayer together. Lord, I would pray now to you. I would just pray for your, your mercy. Lord, your spirit present here. As we started, Lord, words failed us to describe some of the shame and uh, past baggage we've been bringing as we enter these doors. But Lord, would you now animate your spirit of hope, of truth. Animate, Lord, forgiveness that flows down from the cross. You have truly paid and borne all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, and you long to set the captives free. Start that tonight in the lives of men and women who are here, Father. Even as we worship, we ask you to stir in their hearts and speak to them. Do a work here, Lord. We want to stand out like an outpost of the kingdom of God in a sex-obsessed world. We want, to, we want to be a sex-obsessed church, but have the right vision of it, the vision that you ordained and gifted to us. Thank you for sex. Thank you for intimacy with God, with others that is ours through the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. We come to you now with humbled spirits in truth and honesty.